Thank you so much to our children's choirs, the ones featured this morning. What a wonderful job they, they've done. And thankful for those parents who bring their, their children to choir practice each Wednesday night and those who work with them. Uh, the songs that children place in their heart, they remember those for the rest of their lives. And uh, what a wonderful program we have. Thank you, uh, children, for leading us in worship today. I know that God is pleased with the voices of children. We continue our sermon series from the fourth gospel. Today we find ourselves in, in John chapter 4. People have searched for the fountain of mystical restorative waters for as long as stories have been shared. All the way back to the fifth century, Herodotus wrote about this water with the power of life. Some say that Alexander the Great may have been looking for a river that would heal from the ravages of life. The name most often associated with this search for powerful water is the 16th century Spanish explorer Ponce de Leon. He was supposedly looking for that fountain of youth right there in Florida, and you and I stand today as a testimony that he did not find it because we have not drunk from that water. While none of these legends ever really produced living water, today you and I find that water itself as Jesus sits at the well as a Samaritan woman comes by to speak with Jesus. Well, last week we looked at his conversation with a Pharisee, Nicodemus. Today we eavesdrop on the conversation Jesus had with this Samaritan woman at the well. The two characters in this conversation could not have been any more different from each other. One a man, the other a woman, one a Jew, the other a Samaritan, one a saint, the other a sinner. They were completely different from each other. Well, in the first three verses, look at those with me. When therefore the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. In chapter 1, the Pharisees had taken note of the baptizing activity of John, and they wanted to know, well, now why are you baptizing if you're not Elijah, if you're not the Christ, if you're not the prophet, why are you baptizing? So you can be sure that their watchful eye was all the more attuned on the activity of Jesus as he was gaining popularity over John, even as John intended. And so they're watching Jesus. And Jesus, therefore, decides, verse 3, he needs to leave Judea and go to Galilee because the Pharisees are pressing too much on his ministry. In verse 3, that word for left Judea is a Greek word that means abandoned. In fact, it's used in verse 28 of this chapter when the woman 
left her pot. She came to get water. She finds Jesus. She abandons her pot at the well, her water jar at the well. So in this same chapter, it's abandoned. Jesus is, for the moment, it's a judgment uh, saying. He has abandoned Jerusalem to go to Galilee. Well, the first thing I want you to see this morning is the discerning divine appointments. Discerning divine appointments, verses 1 through 9. Well, look at verses 4 through 6. He came to pass, he had to pass through Samaria. And he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus at the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, Jews did not like to deal with Samaritans. The Samaritans were something of half-breed Jews. They had been left in the land after the deportation by the Assyrians, and they only read the first five books of the Bible. We'll see in a moment they worshipped in a different place, and, well, they offered to help the Jews rebuild their temple, and the Jews refused, and the Jews actually tore down the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. So there was a lot of bad blood or animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. So normally a Jew would not go through Samaria, even though it was a straight shot. Normally they would go east, Transjordan, about at Jericho, go up at Galilee and cross back over. It's as if this afternoon that, that, I, that I had to go to Dumas, and I went through Borger to get there. That would be the best way that I could explain it. They would go through Borger to get to Dumas from Amarillo because they didn't want to have to deal with these Samaritans. Well, notice that language. He had to pass through Samaria. It's an indication of a divine appointment. Jesus, unlike the other Jews was willing to deal with the Samaritans. He has to pass through there because he has a divine appointment to meet a woman at the well. The name of the place is Sychar. It's probably Ascar today. And Jacob's well is about a half mile south of the modern village. Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment. Do you have a divine appointment today? Are you here this morning in this place because Jesus wants to talk to you too, to show you the way of living water? Now, this reference, notice, Jacob and Joseph, Jacob's well, land he gave to Joseph, reminds us that this divine appointment between Jesus and this woman occurs on soil that God has been tilling for centuries. Calling the patriarchs is, is part of our story. John shows us that this encounter between Jesus and the woman becomes part of the bigger biblical scene. In the middle of the day, on the soil upon which God had already worked, Christ sat at the well of Jacob. Now, he's already told us in chapter 1 and verse 14 that the Word 
became flesh. That which was in the beginning with God, that which was with God, the co-creator of the cosmos, the Word became flesh and, and dwelt among us, lived among us. And now he tells us, not only does Jesus have flesh, but he's weary. He's tired. He's thirsty. He has no bucket. And as fully human, he needs a drink of water. He needs to be hydrated. John tells us it's noontime. John always tells us what time it is. He is such a great keeper of detail. Now, noontime was an unusual time to draw the water. Normally, women would go in the evening in the, the cool of the day. Perhaps she's come at noon by herself, unlike the other women who come to the well traveling in groups because she doesn't want to be the victim of the repeated rumors about her sinful lifestyle. Well, the, the woman comes to draw her water, and Jesus is no doubt weary and thirsty. But perhaps he begins this conversation as a way to care for the woman. Look at verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? Then John kind of adds an aside. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. The woman at the well is trying to process this request that comes from the rabbi she sees sitting there. How could he possibly ask her for a drink? Because, number one, she was a woman, he was a man, and in, certainly in public, men and women in that culture wouldn't carry on a conversation, especially at a, a public place like the village well. And secondly, and more importantly than the man-woman dichotomy, is the fact that he is a Jew. And Jews despised her kind, Samaritans. So how is he, a Jew, asking her, a Samaritan, for some water? Well, the particulars of ritual purity would have separated a Jewish man from a Samaritan woman in every circumstance. Well, there's a second thing I want you to see besides the divine poem. And the second thing is living water satisfies. Verses 10 through 15, living water satisfies. Look at verse 10. And Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, just like Jesus did with Nicodemus, Speaking of being born again, and Nicodemus says, how can I enter my mother's womb a second time? Jesus lifts the language from the material to the spiritual. Surely he is thirsty, and certainly he's asking for a quenching drink of water, but it's more than that. He can offer her the living water. If you knew who I am, you would ask from me, and I would give you living water. 
living water and notes water that is fresh and flowing from a spring of life. It serves as a metaphor for wonderful spiritual nourishment. In Jeremiah 2.13, we read, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, says God, the fountain of living water. God himself and the prophet is the fountain of living water. They've made their own cisterns, says Jeremiah, that do not hold water. They have traded me the living water for cisterns that won't even hold water. Or in Zechariah 14, we look forward to a time when living waters will flow out from Jerusalem. And finally, Isaiah 55, 1, everyone who thirsts, let him come to the waters. Everyone who thirsts, let him come to the waters. So Jesus is saying to her, if you knew who I am, you would ask me, I represent God, I am God, I am the living water, I would give you the salvation that you so long for. Well, she has mundane hearing. She can't think about spiritual matters. She's like Nicodemus who says, hey, I can't enter a womb again. She says something along the lines of, look at verse 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw with water, and the well's deep. Where do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Let's see, sir, I don't know you now. In her defense, all she sees is a, a weary Jewish man seated at a well. She doesn't know it's Jesus. Now, I'm going to go with Jacob's water over your water, sir, is what she's saying. Besides, you don't even have a bucket. You're asking me for a drink of water. How can you give me living water? He wants to know, is she thirsty? How about you this morning? Are you thirsty for God's forgiveness? Are you thirsting this morning for God's grace? Do you long for the love of God to come into your life? Sir, you don't have a bucket, she says. You don't have a, a ladle. Well, look what, what is said in verses 13 and 14 by Jesus. Jesus answered her and said, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. For the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up. There it is to eternal life. There's the matter of discussion. Well, the strange, vigorous, ever-flowing, living water spirit of God reminds us of Isaiah 12, 3. You will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. There it is, Isaiah 12. This living water is salvation. He's offering her salvation. And she says in verse 15, finally she has an insight. Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor have to come all the way to the well again. If you have some sort of water that will satisfy for all eternity, give me that water and give me that water now. Third thing I want you to see in verses 16 through 19 Seeing through our sin, 
to our suffering, seeing through our sin to our suffering. Notice how it continues. Jesus says to her, go call your husband to come here. The woman answered him and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one with whom you now have is not your husband. This you have truly said. And the woman said, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. With the precision of a prophet, Jesus now illuminates the fact that the woman herself is the one who is spiritually parched. At the very least, she has a very morally messy past. And she is in great need of the salvation, the forgiveness, and the grace that comes from this living water. Hearing Jesus' nosy command, go call your husband, the woman responds honestly. Yes, that's right. The rabbi retorts, that's right, you have no husband. The truth is, you have had five husbands, and the guy you're sleeping with now, he's not even your husband. Jesus sees through to our sin and our suffering. Now, we want to make a lot of this sinful woman of Samaria, but the reality is, in the first century, women were pretty powerless They didn't determine when a divorce was going to occur. They were divorced by their husbands. She had been disposed of by five different men and five different marriages, maybe widowed on occasion. We can't be sure. I'm not trying to whitewash her misadventures, but the reality is she had no power. She had been passed from man to man and husband and husband, and now she is a sufferer at the hands of a man who's not even willing to be her husband. With that moment of insight, knowing that Jesus can tell her everything about her, she says, sir, I perceive you are a prophet, for you know everything about me. This man who sits at the well knows everything about me and about you. Two, what does the prophet, what does Jesus perceive about us this morning? Can he see through to our sin? Of course he can. Can he see through to our suffering like the woman's suffering? Indeed, he can. You see, this man knows more than he should know, and he perceives more than he should be able to see. He knows everything, and he's willing to lay it on the table. Now, Samaritans only believing in the first five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah, they, the next prophet was going to be the Messiah. So now she has stirred the air with messianic expectations. There's a fourth thing I want you to see. Worshiping in a worthy manner. Verses 20 through 24, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and the people, you people say, worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe in me, an hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But an hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to worship him. Why, just reading the first five books of the Old Testament, it doesn't explicitly say that Jerusalem is the place for worship. So they didn't get that because those were not in their Bible. And they saw at Mount Gerizim that God's people had been blessed as they entered the promised land. They actually argued that Abraham had offered Isaac for a sacrifice at Mount Gerizim. And so they saw Mount Gerizim as the place to worship. And the Jews reading all of the prophets and the Psalms, knew that Zion, that Jerusalem was a place to worship. But Jesus says, I'm not going to get in a conversation and, and argue about meaningless holy mountains. I'm going to talk to you about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. It's not the right place that matters. It's the right attitude that matters. Notice he says, the hour is coming. Now, in John's gospel, that hour means that hora in the Greek. The hour is the time of his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so the hour is coming. In fact, it has already started when you will worship in spirit and in truth. The center of our worship is that hour of our Lord's crucifixion and resurrection. The hour is coming. The hour now is. It is about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Fifth thing I want you to see, realizing this rabbi is he, verse 25 through 38. Realizing this rabbi is he. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When that one comes, he will tell us everything. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I marvel that some people say Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. If you think that, you're wrong. He just did right here. The woman says... Now, I know when the Messiah gets here, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus says, he's here. I am he. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that is the language of God. When Moses is at the burning bush, God tells him to go and, and set God's people free from the Pharaoh. And he says, I'm going to tell them the God their fathers has come. They're going to say, well, what God is that? What am I going to tell them? And God says at the burning bush, you tell them I am has sent you. Make no mistake. This rabbi at the well is claiming to be Yahweh. I am. I am the God. I am Yahweh. I am the Messiah. I am who I am. He is here. Verse 27, the disciples show up. They've gone to search for food. They're marveling. What's he doing speaking to a Samaritan woman? The woman abandons her water pot, pot, verse 28. And look at verse 29. The woman flees to the city and says to the men, Come see the man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? It's said with the expectation of no, but the hope of yes. 
This isn't. It couldn't be. Could it possibly be? Is this the Christ? He knew everything about me. Well, as it proceeds, skip down to verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. He stays a couple of more days, and because the woman says, I've met the prophet, the whole city goes out to meet him, the whole village. And they say to the woman, we came out here because of your testimony, but now we ourselves have heard, and we ourselves know this is the Savior of the world. Jesus crossed so many barriers to get in conversation with a woman at the well, gender barriers, religious barriers, ethnic barriers. When's the last time you crossed a barrier to tell someone about Jesus? I do a whole lot of funerals, three last week. And I know I'm bearing a barrier breaker by who attends the funeral. Are the people at the funeral from different cultures, different races, different generations? What barriers have you broken? Yes, folks have looked for this living water since stories have been told and none of them have ever found it. But today, you and I, listening in, eavesdropping on a conversation between a Jewish rabbi and a Samaritan woman, we have found that fountain of living water. You know, John wrote Revelation, the apocalypse at the end of Scripture, and this is what is said at the end. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. This is Revelation 21, 5. He said, write these words, for they're faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. This same Jesus, no longer a rabbi sitting at the well, but the returning cosmic Lord and Savior comes to bring that same living water. Those who thirst, I will give them living water. Salvation, grace, forgiveness. How about you? Do you have a divine appointment today? Is this your day to partake of that living water, to learn to worship in spirit and truth? Is the Messiah seeing through you today to know both of your sin and your suffering? Does he say, 
if you knew who I am, you'd ask me, and I would give you water, and from that water, you would never thirst again. Let us pray. Oh, God, he is indeed a prophet, and he knows more than we'd like for him to know, and he sees more than we'd like for him to see, and we're all that woman at the well, the divine appointment to see the Savior. And he sees our sin and our suffering, and he loves us still the same, and he tells us, just ask and I will give you the water the prophet spoke of, the living water springing up to life eternal. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. If you're here this morning and it's your morning to proclaim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd invite you to come. You're here this morning and you had a divine appointment as a day that you realize that he knows you better than you want him to know you. He knows everything about you and yet he loves you enough to die for you anyway. Maybe it's your day to begin to worship him in spirit and truth, worship him in light of his crucifixion and resurrection. Maybe it's your day to come and be a part of this great church. 611, I'll meet you at the front. Stand together as we sing 611. <laughs>